Our Father, we as your people come to celebrate that you are, your mercy is everlasting. That you, this God of mercy that could have never been concocted in any of our fertile minds, a God who mixes perfectly justice and mercy, a God who indeed will discipline his people but will never kick them out of the family, a God who knows how to mix wrath and love all in the same person. Some of us are more wrathful than loving and some of us are more loving than wrathful, but not you, O God. You are a God who combines those two traits perfectly. And on top of all that, you're a God who listens to the cry and the plea of your people. And Father, we bring those before you this morning. We are a needy bunch. Your word describes us as people who came as little children, and indeed we are. We're constantly having needs. We're constantly asking our Heavenly Father for something. And we will never stop, O God. You have invited us, you have encouraged us, and come we must. Because you are the only source of good there is. Father, any goodness among us is nothing but reflections of your goodness. It is the result and the product of the work of your Holy Spirit in us. And so, Father, we come again to be refreshed by getting a glimpse of who you are. Father, one day... One day we will see you as you really are. And all of our sin will be sucked out of us as we gaze upon perfect beauty. And so, Father, give us but a taste of that beauty this day. We long to be more like the Savior. It is a glimpse of deity that we long for now. Meet with us, O God. Meet with us in this hour. And might we leave people who have been changed by the powerful work of your indwelling spirit. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite your attention to the seventh chapter of Paul's letter to the Roman church. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. If you were with us on Wednesday night, uh, you know what I'm up to, but if you were not able to be with us on Wednesday night, let me uh, give you a brief word of explanation. I have swapped studies, at least for a couple of three weeks. That is, the study that normally we're doing on Sunday morning, I've moved to Wednesday night. And what we're normally doing on Wednesday night, I've moved to Sunday morning. We've moved Acts to, Roman, Acts to Wednesday and Romans to Sunday for the next few weeks, for the next couple of weeks. And the reason is, what you're about to read, and I hope will be ably handled is some of the richest, one of the richest statements that is made about you and me in the entirety of Holy Writ. Follow as I read it. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man... As long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law 
so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You may not know it, but this is one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 7 is perhaps one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. It is the classicus locus of of, uh, Paul's view of, his explanation of, his uh, clarification of the role, the function, the place, the purpose of the law. Um, The controversy usually centers around verses 13 through 25. And uh, fortunately, that's not our text for the morning, so we'll uh, avoid the controversy. But chapter 7 is actually parenthetical. Um, It is designed to clear up issues that Paul realized would arise in the minds of his hearers. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by parenthetical. Guys, There is a statement that is made at the end of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 of Romans 5. The nature of that statement is so sweeping, so profound, where Paul states that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where sin did its damage, grace has done far more to repair whatever damage sin has done. In response to that statement by the Apostle Paul, Paul realizes that his audience is going to misunderstand some things. And so he sets out to address issues that he believes are already in his hearers' minds. For instance, if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, one of the issues that he addresses is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That whole idea, oh, I heard what you said, Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And if that's true, then why don't we just sin as much as we can possibly sin so that grace can abound the more? And Paul says, that is awful. And so he addresses that objection in the entirety of chapter 6. That's parenthetical. That is, chapter 6 is parenthetical, addressing an issue that Paul knew was in the minds of his hearers. Chapter 7 does the same thing, but it's a different issue. In response again to what he has said in 5, 20, and 21, um, his audience, he thinks, is going to be thinking this way. Paul, if I understand correctly what you're saying about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, if I understand that correctly, then it seems to me that what you have done is set aside the law entirely, completely, altogether. There is no function. There is no role. The law is completely set aside. So to correct that notion, Paul dedicates this chapter to the proper understanding and functioning of the law. Um, He is concerned that people know and rightly think of 
the role, the purpose, the place, the function of the law. And so, again, chapter 7 is parenthetical. Both 6 and 7 uh, owe their existence to the statement that he made in 5, 20, and 21. Have I lost you yet? <laughs> We've only begun. Um, so chapter 7 is a parenthesis where Paul pauses to explain a problem that he thought might have arisen as a result of what he said in 52021. Are you there? Now, there's a couple of other things that I want you to see, and then we're going to try to dive into the text. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul is addressing brethren. He repeats that in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... Guys, this is addressed to people who, Jews and Gentiles alike, who had been converted. This is addressed to an audience that is already redeemed. Like you. And uh, I'm not so foolish as to believe that everybody in a room, uh, in a group this size is, uh, is converted. But in general, I want you to notice, because it's important, ladies and gentlemen, I understand you this text. That this is addressed to the family, to us. Now, one other thing, and then we'll get going. You need to understand his, his, his use of the word law, at least in these first four verses. Uh, what law, Paul, are you describing in verses 1 through 4? Well, it's, it's not confined to Mosaic law. Uh, it's law in general, or... Um, or universal law, or um, the written law of the Old Testament, or the Mosaic law in all of its parts, or something like that. The best phrase that I could come up with is this, the law of the land. Now, keep store that, guys, because he's about to make a principle with that definition, the law of the land. Okay? Now, that's what he has in view in these first four verses. Here we go. You will notice in verse 1 that there's a parenthesis in verse 1, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, what he is stating in that parenthesis is simply that I, he realizes that his audience already understands what he's about to say. And what he's about to say is that principle of verse 1 that begins with the word that. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, gang, you've got to fix your attention on that sentence. That is a principle, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The law of the land has dominion over a man as long as that man lives. Isn't that the truth? Don't we know it? Who got a speeding ticket this past week? Huh? Who, um, who has ever um, uh, been fined for uh, paying your taxes late? Anybody gone to jail? I hope not. But uh, we're glad you're here. Um, but you, you, <laughs> we're glad you're out. Um, but, but you understand what he's saying. The principle is simply this. As long as you're, li- as you're alive, you are under law. But when you die, that law ceases to have any authority over you whatsoever. You don't sue a dead man. You don't send a dead man to jail because the principle is simply this. 
as long as you're alive. You're under law. But once you die, you're not under law. <laughs> Guys, you got that much. Because if you can get that, it is going to make an extraordinary difference in your life. Now, verses 2 and 3, in verses 2 and 3, all Paul is doing is giving you an illustration of the principle. He takes one specific law of the land and he uses it to illustrate what it is he's trying to communicate. He takes the law of marriage. You know, guys, I must confess to you that um, prior to Hungary, the only time that I have usually come to verses 2 and 3 of Romans 7 was to prove to you that if your husband died, you could remarry somebody else. That's the only way I've ever used this. And I want you to know that's true. Uh, if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. That's certainly true. But that's not the purpose of this text. Paul is using the law of marriage to illustrate the, the principle that he established in 7.1. The principle is that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Then he illustrates Here's the illustration. Marriage. If you're married, you're under the law of that marriage. The law of that husband, let's say. Um, But if that husband dies, you're free to remarry. But as long as, as that husband lives, you're under that law. Um, While married, you are under... The law of that marriage. Now, guys, wake up and listen. That is an illustration. The, the, the principle that operates within marriage is a principle that is, it is, illustrates the principle that operates in the life of the regenerate and the unregenerate. The saved and the not saved. The uh, Christian and the non-Christian. That is, he is likening the, 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 the condition of the unregenerate man and the regenerate man to the, to the situation that exists in a marriage when a husband is alive and when a husband is dead. Let me try to clarify some more. In, in this illustration over here of marriage, being married to the husband represents living in an unregenerate state. But when that husband dies and you are free to remarry, that's illustrative of the regenerate state. While I am married, I am under law. But once a death occurs... I am no longer under law, the law of that marriage. Guys, because of the permanence of marriage, Paul is illustrating that man is permanently under law.
until until a death takes place. And once that death takes place, that law is dead. Now guys, go back, just for sake of emphasis. I hope I've emphasized it enough, but we'll emphasize it a little more. Look at verse 2. You'll see the word, but if the husband dies, she is released. If you've got your Bible open, if you can find 6-6, the same Greek word that is translated released is translated in 6-6 this way. That the body of sin might be, here it is, done away with. Rendered null and void. Rendered inoperative. Now go back to 7-2. But if the husband dies, she is released. There is no more relationship to that former husband. It was... um, The word that is translated released is a word that means to bring to naught, to to empty it. If death occurs, the bride is released and there is no more obligation that she has to her former husband. Now, guys, if you have gone this far with me, you are you are ready to tread in some rich waters. If you don't understand what I've just said, I'm telling you, get the tape and listen again until you do get it. Because I'm telling you guys, you've got to get that. Because what you get in verse 4 is one of the most glorious descriptions of what it means to be a Christian that I know to be found anywhere in the Scripture. What what Paul does in verse 4 is is illustrate to believers who they are. Here's one of those wonderful definitions of what it means to be a Christian. Let me read verse 4 to you. Therefore, you notice that therefore, don't you? That's, of course, Paul getting ready to apply what he just said in verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, my brethren, therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ... You also have become dead to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. That or so that you may be married to another. To whom? To him who was raised from the dead. For what reason? That we should bear fruit to God. Guys, what Paul is teaching here is the, the, the transformation that takes place when a person passes from being in bondage to law and through a relationship to Christ passes to a, a, a life of grace. 
And the, the image or the, the, the metaphor that is being used is the metaphor of marriage. It is one of the sweeter descriptions of us that I know. Let me, let me try to unpack some of it for you. First of all, gang, because of a relationship that we have to Christ, we are free from the obligations of that former marriage. That is, our relationship to law has ended. And it has ended because of a death. Whose death? Through the body of Christ. His death. Because of what was accomplished by his death, I am now free. Again, we're talking to brethren here. I am now free from the obligations of the law. We are dead to law as a system, as a rule of life. As a, well, let me, we're, we're, we're dead to law as a system that would, would prompt in me this, this determination on, on my part to somehow demonstrate my worth by some kind of obedience and performance. I'm no longer under a system that seeks to justify myself by some kind of performing. That was our position. And I dare say, ladies and gentlemen, it is the position of some, even in this room, who seek to build some kind of approach to God by some life of obedience and performing. And you think down deep in your heart that you can live well enough. So that God will approve of you. And this text states that the only way to be free of a tyranny of the law is through the body of Christ and that death there. Gang, this is the gospel in a nutshell. It means that to be a Christian, that we have an entirely new life. It involves a dying and a rising Becoming a Christian doesn't, doesn't require some simple slight life modification as if, oh well, now that I'm a religious man, I'm gonna stop smoking. Or I'm gonna modify my behavior in the wit here and there. No, ladies and gentlemen. Becoming a Christian is, is the most radical transformation that any of us will ever undergo. I told you that story years, uh, months ago about St. Augustine, who you might remember lived in his early years as a young man, as a very, um, um, very lecherous kind of lifestyle. And so one day after he had become a Christian, he ran into one of the women with whom he used to cavort. And um, he kind of ignored her. And uh, she, looked, she yelled for him and said, Augustine, Augustine, don't you recognize me? It's me. And Augustine looked at her and said, yes, but it is not me. 
Ladies and gentlemen, becoming a Christian is one of the most transforming revolutions that takes place in the soul of man. It is not simply behavior modification. Spiritually, ladies and gentlemen, the changes are absolutely molecular. I have become a new creature. I passed from this to this. Guys, also, I I think you can take from this verse 4. As Christians, we have been given an entirely new purpose to our life. Look what he says. To him who was raised from the dead so that we could bear fruit to God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the purpose of, the, of this, this new creature. What has happened to you? I'll tell you what's happened to you. You have passed from the dominion and tyranny of law. And because of a death, you have been married to another. You have passed from tyranny to freedom. You used to have one husband, now you have a different husband. It's a new husband. And the purpose of that new relationship is to bring forth fruit to God. So often the non-Christian lives for himself. And, but we as the people of God have been given this new ability, this new power, so that we can live otherwise. So that we can bring forth fruit to God. Gang, everything that we do is either directly or indirectly designed to bring forth fruit to God. Can you say that? Can you say that this kind of transformation has taken place in your life? Let, let, me, let me try to clarify a bit more. Can, how about, let me give you some, what I call, tests of life. Um, here's one. Do you enjoy worship? I, I'm not saying do you enjoy music. I'm not saying do you enjoy singing. I'm asking you, do you enjoy worship? Do you enjoy fellowshipping with the God who made you and redeemed you? Do you enjoy the company of His people? Do you enjoy worship? Secondly, do you, uh, can you honestly say that you, 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 you desire uh, perhaps small at this point, but there is a desire in you to know God better. Can you say that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, people who have undergone this transformation are people who want to know their God. Is serving God important to you? Is it? Do do you see any fruit? Because that's the purpose for which we exist. To bring forth fruit to God. Do you see any? I'm not asking, can I see it? I'm asking, can you see it? Can you see fruit being born? Fruit to God in your life? Because, ladies and gentlemen, people who have passed under from this tyranny of law and have been married to another, they bring forth fruit to God. And I say to those of you who perhaps are saying, no, Jimmy, none of that is true to me. None of that is true about me. Then how can I, how can I come into this relationship with this, with this Savior of yours? 
Well, I can tell you two things from this text. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, whatever it is, it centers upon Jesus Christ. Everything. Christianity is Christ and everything else is circumference. When you talk about your religious standing, how much do you talk about Christ? Because he's the heart and soul of the whole message, ladies and gentlemen. He is the guts. He is the hub. He is the center. He is all of it. And how did he save us? Not by his teaching. Not by his ethic. Not by his morality. He saved us by his death. It is through that death that people have passed from one marriage to another. Now, assuming for a moment that that's been done, here's what I want you to leave with, ladies and gentlemen. It's that statement in verse 4, that you may be married to another. Gang, that is one of the most beautiful images in my mind that exists in the Scriptures. Do you know who we are? Do you know who we are? We're married. We're married to another. I have a new spouse. By the way, this might be more difficult for men than it is women. Because the, the, the illustration here is that we're all a bride. And that's what, of course, the New Testament describes this. But, but guys, one of the summary statements of our existence as the people of God is this. We are Married to another. We used to be married to law. We used to be married to that foolishness that suggested that we could somehow earn our standing before God. We used to be so benighted that we thought that we could somehow beat the curve and, and be acceptable in the sight of God if we gave to the United Way and helped the low ladies across the street. But we're not that anymore. We are married to another. You know, ladies and gentlemen, for us to be in this new marriage, something had to happen to Christ, and it did. It happened at Calvary. And something had to happen to us as well. And that happened too. And it also happened at Calvary. He died to sin. And because I am His... That death to sin is mine. I too am dead to it. I'm dead to law. I'm dead to its clamorings. It's not going to follow me into the throne room of heaven and denounce me. It's dead. And I am married to another. Gang, there's a, there's a great illustration of this principle. It's found in 1 Samuel 25. I'll just tell you the story. I think most of you know this story. If you don't, read it this afternoon. It is glorious. It's a story about David. And David has not yet uh, assumed the, his rightful place as king of Israel just yet. He's still being hunted by Saul. Do you remember that period in his life? And he's got this band of brigands that have gathered around him. And he's roaming around the countryside and playing Robin Hood. And, and he's um, protecting this and doing that. And there's one particular uh, uh, sheep owner or, or estate owner by the name of Nabal. Remember him? 
and, and David's army was kind of camped close to his property. And David was uh, providing this protective shield to everything that Nabal, Nabal owned. And so on, on one particular occasion, he goes to Nabal and he says, um, he goes to his representatives and he says, um, listen, listen, now, uh, my men would like to have some, a uh, couple of, uh, sheep to eat and some raisins and some wine and, and, uh, could you give us that? And, and, um, uh, you know, because we do provide a wonderful service for you by protecting everything that's Nabal's. And so his servants go to Nabal and Nabal says, ha, tell him to get lost. I'm giving him nothing. So when David's representatives get back to David and say, David, um, you know, Nabal uh, said he wasn't giving us anything and he made fun of you. David says, all right, boys, strap on your soldiers, your, your swords. We're going after him. And so his, his little army moves towards the home of Nabal. Nabal's wife, you remember her? Remember her? His wife gets a hold of um, um, her husband and, and tries to talk some sense into him and says, um, you know, uh, this is a bad thing that we've done and he won't listen. So his wife, Abigail, goes and gathers a bunch of supplies and, and puts them on donkeys and races out to David's army and gives all of the, the supplies to David. And, and David says to Abigail, well, you know, it's a good thing that you did that. It's a darn good thing you did that, because if you hadn't have done that, my army was about to burn everything that Nabal owns. And so Abigail goes back to her husband and she says to her husband, you know what just happened? You almost got killed by David's little army. And he is so overtaken with fear that, that Nabal dies of a heart attack. When David discovers... That Nabal is dead. He takes Abigail and in a matter of days marries her. Abigail. By the way, Nabal's name means fool. Abigail used to be married to a fool. But now. She's married to the king. Ladies and gentlemen, we used to be married to a fool. And now in Christ, we are married to the king. We used to be tyrannized by the demands of law. And then someone told us of the beauties of this Savior. And now we are married to another. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means for us? Well, first of all, it means that we're one flesh with Christ. You know what one fleshness is, don't you? There could be nothing more intimate than one fleshness. We are in one flesh with Christ Jesus. He has given us His name. And by the way, that's a name that is above every name. I am in one flesh relationship with the, who's, the, with the one whose name is above all names. I am... Um, I am, as a result of being in this marriage, I am completely and entirely subject to my new husband. 
I have his name and I'll have it permanent. How long do I have that name? Uh, how long will this relationship last? Until I sin? Nonsense. I am married to Christ permanently. My brother and sister, listen to me. If you struggle, and so many of you do, if you struggle with issues of assurance, then listen to me. Nabal is dead! And we're married to another. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Ladies and gentlemen, the law is dead. And we, we are married to another. For what reason? To bring forth fruit to God. The whole reason of our existence, ladies and gentlemen, is to bring forth fruit. Do you understand? Do you get the mental picture in your marriage? When did you bring forth fruit? In acts of intimacy, in acts of one fleshness. Ladies and gentlemen, I am married to Christ Jesus. And the whole purpose of my existence is to bring forth fruit. Is that who you are? I hope so, my friend. But if you are, if you are married to Christ, drink it in. Soak it up, ladies and gentlemen. Because the law is dead. And we, we are permanently married Our Father, I do pray that you will convey to your people the beauty of this this image that your Holy Spirit has left behind. This is not something that was created in the fertile minds of a preacher. This is something that was authored and, and inspired by God himself to think that you would use this language to describe your people is glory indeed. Our Father, might our oneness with the Savior be that which propels from us greater production of spiritual fruit. All for the glory of the great God 
who has brought to naught the clamorings of the law against us. We will never be condemned by it again. Father, um, might your people relish the glory of being permanently found in union, in marital union, in saving union with the King of Kings. I pray, Lord, if you have brought people here who have not yet met our Savior, that they might not leave here with the tyranny of the law hanging over their souls that will do nothing but damn them. Might they see the beauty of this gospel as portrayed in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.